Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 41 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. It has been a hot minute since our last journey into the gaming wildlands, so I'm really thankful you've decided to join up with our expedition today. Whether this is your first time with us or you've joined us in the past, it's really great having you here. Now, normally, this is the part where our canine expedition leader, Dee Dee, struts out and greets you all with his signature dog smile and administers the ritualistic sniffing of the leg. But poor Didi has gotten himself in a tight spot. Just a few days ago, Didi came across a huge radioactive chest buried in the ground. As soon as Didi went over and touched it, he grew to an enormous size. The chest itself fell into the earth and Didi tumbled down with it. Now, I don't know about you all, but I've grown quite fond of our expedition leader, so our Wildlands expedition is going to be going somewhere it hasn't gone before and that's underground. I'm sure there will be unspeakable radioactive dangers to look out for in battle as we search for our canine companion, but as long as we stick together, we'll make it through. And if that all sounds like a terrible video game plot, you would be correct, because it is. On today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at a video game that centers around the most nonsensical story setup, but arguably has some of the best gameplay on the original Nintendo Entertainment System, as well as one of the best gaming soundtracks I've heard up to this point. It's a side-scrolling, run-and-gun style shooter where you take control of a tank that can lay waste to your enemies, but that's not all you'll find that you're going to need to get out of your tank and traverse the harsh and dangerous landscape on foot as well. It's a pretty awesome idea, especially for a Nintendo game, but be warned, dear listener, from my experience, I think this game is one that coined the phrase NES Tough because this game is hard as balls. I, of course, am talking about a little game known as Blaster Master. Blaster Master was one of those NES games I've heard about growing up, and again as I started to get more into retro games as an adult, but I never really got around to playing it. That is, until a few weeks ago when I decided to give it a shot on my Nintendo Switch using my Nintendo Online subscription. On our last podcast episode, where I ranked my top 10 favorite level 1 music themes, Just another video game blog over on our Facebook page called out Blaster Master, and ever since then, I started to develop an itch to finally give this game a try. I was on vacation with my family a couple weeks back and thought Blaster Master might be a good one to tackle. So I booted it up and set out to see what all the fuss was about surrounding this game. And truth be told, I felt like I bit off a little more than I could chew. This game has an almost unforgiving difficulty. It has no map system to tell you where it is that you are or where you have to go, and controlling the tank just felt very, I don't know, clunky is probably the best word that I can come up with here. I went online and posted to the community what it was that I was feeling, and I got some pretty interesting feedback. In summary, though, I was encouraged to stick with it, and I'd be well rewarded for my efforts. 
Those that loved Blaster Master absolutely sung its praises. Those that didn't, though, told me that later entries in the series were much better and there was no shame in quitting this one. So, what did I end up doing? Well, ultimately, I decided to stick this one out and I finished it a few days ago. Along the way, I learned that Blaster Master is considered to be one of the best NES titles on the entire platform. Did I ultimately feel like this praise was well-deserved? Is Blaster Master actually fun to play today? Or is Blaster Master overhyped and should be avoided at all costs? Well, gather around the campfire, my friends. I'm eager to tell you about my adventures with this game and share with you the details of my harrowing adventures underground. Now, if you're new to the show, I like to kick things off by chatting it up with you all for a little bit and giving you all a little bit of a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands before getting into the episode proper. Depending on what's on my mind, I like to talk about what's going on with the podcast itself, what games I might be playing, what's going on in my personal life, any projects that I'm working on, or whatever else pops up. I'll also read and respond to any comments that I received when I put a call out for them on our social media pages. This week, though, since it's been a few weeks since our last episode and I was on vacation with the family, I have a decent amount of stuff I feel like rambling about today. Now, if none of this sounds interesting to you and you're just here for my thoughts on Blaster Master, you can skip ahead in the recording about 12 to 15 minutes or so and you should get to my gaming thoughts. 12 to 15 minutes is just an estimate, so if you don't want to mess with your podcast slider doohickey thing, I've loaded timestamps into the show notes so you can get exactly where you need to go. Typically our intros aren't that long, but yeah, I feel like talking a little bit today, and I would be very, very honored if you stayed with me and let me ramble your ear off a little bit. I certainly have a lot of fun things to share, things involving video games, maybe a movie or two, and just retro stuff in general. So, without further ado, let's get settled in for our opening segment that I like to call Campfire Ketchups. So probably the biggest thing to happen to me since we talked last is that my family and I went on a vacation a couple weeks ago. Seventeen of us, including my wife and two stepkids, sisters-in-law, their kids, my father-in-law and his wife, his wife's kids and a couple family friends, packed ourselves into a couple vehicles and road-tripped to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. We stayed in a house right on the beach and we had an absolute blast. Pretty much the entire week was us waking up, heading to the beach, relaxing and swimming, going back to the house for lunch, returning for some more fun in the sun, having dinner, drinking copious amounts of alcohol, and repeating. It was a fantastic time, and during this time, I made the decision to just shut my brain off almost completely when it came to work and doing almost anything for the podcast. Which, I will say, was very much needed, though it did set me back on making episodes for the podcast more than I was anticipating. So, on one hand, I apologize to those of you who've wondered where the hell I went these last few weeks, but on the other hand, I really needed that time to just disconnect and not have to worry about deadlines or anything like that. But in any case, back to the vacation talk, aside from going to the beach most days and drinking myself silly, I made it a point to game as much as I reasonably could. 
If you follow the Retro Wildlands on any of our social media pages, you may have caught that I picked up the Final Fantasy Pixel remasters on physical for my Switch, thanks to PlayAsia. I have not completed any of the Final Fantasy games before 7, so I wanted to use the Pixel remaster as a reason to finally complete the older ones that I missed out on. Once I slotted my cartridge into my Nintendo Switch, I decided to start with the one Final Fantasy that I've been most excited to play, and that is Final Fantasy VI. It is beloved by so many, and I am almost ashamed to say that I've never played it all the way through. But that is going to change. I think at this point, I'm about halfway into the story. I am really loving the story so far and found myself really liking most of the characters I'm playing as and coming across. Battling hordes of enemies is fun, and now that I'm to a point where I can equip characters with espers, which allows them to learn new abilities through combat, I am in full-on grind mode right now. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be giving Final Fantasy VI an episode of the show when I'm done with it, so be on the lookout for that at some point. I also completed a solo playthrough of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge on my Switch as well. Of all the Turtles games out there, this game is the best out of all of them, hands down, period, point blank, end of discussion. There's just something about a good beat-em-up with a kick-ass soundtrack and buckets full of nostalgia that just scratches me right behind the ears and gets it just right. And beyond all of that, this game is an absolute blast to play with a group of friends. Just the other night, my wife and kids and I played through the first 10 stages together, and it was awesome. I didn't let it show too much on the outside, but I was very giddy inside. I was having so much fun, and I had a blast with this game, and playing it with my family just made it all the more better. Now, while this game isn't really a retro game per se, I have debated doing an episode on this game for the podcast as well. At the time of this podcast, there's been some new downloadable content in the works for Shredder's Revenge that is slated to drop sometime in 2023. It's called Dimension Shellshock, and includes a sort of survival mode and the ability to play as Usagi Yojimbo, the rabbit ronin warrior that appeared in the 1987 Turtles cartoon a few times, and has his own comic book series if I'm not mistaken. I'm absolutely going to be getting this DLC when it drops, so I think if I'm going to be doing an episode of the podcast on this game, I just need to decide if I want to do one before or after the DLC. <sighs> decisions, decisions. As far as other games go that I've been playing, I'm still cranking through Theater Rhythm Final Bar Line, the Final Fantasy Rhythm game, also on my Nintendo Switch. This game continues to be awesome, and it's a great pick-up-and-play option when I just want to jam through a Final Fantasy song for a few minutes, get some experience points for my party of heroes, and move on to something else. According to my Switch, I've put about 25 or 30 hours into this game so far, and I have absolutely no intention of stopping it anytime soon. One of these days, if I ever start streaming like I've always wanted to, I think this is a game that I'd want to stream. I can see it being really fun, and hopefully it's entertaining to watch, so maybe one day. I also decided to pick up the original Doom, also on my Nintendo Switch, the last time that it was on sale for mere dollars, so I played through that one as well. I have to say, the original Doom plays pretty damn well on the Switch, and since it only set me back a couple of dollars, I think it was a fantastic investment. 
I played through the first episode, Knee Deep in the Dead, and it brought back all sorts of memories from the time that I used to play this game as a kid. I'm going to jump into the next episode, The Shores of Hell, pretty soon and keep cranking away at this one. I've been itching to play a first-person shooter and I can't think of a better one to go back and experience. I'm pretty sure this game will get an episode of the podcast down the road as well. God damn, this game is so good. And lastly, I decided to, on a whim, give Blaster Master on the original Nintendo a try. I just recently got me and my wife a Nintendo Online subscription, so I was able to play Blaster Master on my Switch this way. I'll save my thoughts on this game for the episode itself, but I will say, despite everything I experienced, I am glad I finally got a chance to play through this game, and I owe it all to my Switch and a week away from all of my adult responsibilities. Other than video games, one of my other favorite activities is watching movies, and I've been making it a point to watch more movies whenever I can fit them in, and the mood strikes. My wife travels on occasion for her job, so I'll have the house to myself for a few days at a time, and that's when I like to try and fit some of these movies in, especially movies that I know she will not want to watch. Outside of streaming movies, I especially love going to the actual movie theater whenever possible, too. Nothing beats a good old-fashioned movie experience, complete with buttered popcorn. Oh, yeah. So recently, I've seen The Quiet Place, which I thought was exceptional, Leon the Professional, which I thought was just as exceptional, The Lost City, which is a decently funny action-adventure comedy starring Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, Renfield, which is a decent horror comedy with Nicolas Cage as Dracula, and just the other night I watched a little film called Maggie. Maggie stars Arnold Schwarzenegger and Abigail Breslin. I don't know how popular this movie was back in 2015 when it released, but Maggie is a post-apocalyptic zombie outbreak type of story where Schwarzenegger plays a father whose daughter gets bit by a zombie and struggles with the idea that eventually she'll turn into a cannibalistic shadow of her former self. It was a pretty decent movie, all things considered, and I enjoyed seeing Arnold in something a little bit more serious. Plus the idea of a zombie outbreak story that focuses more on the effects of the outbreak, rather than just merely surviving and shooting everything that moves, was pretty refreshing. And I will say, Abigail Breslin turned in a hell of a performance, too. It may not be a film for everybody, but Maggie was still pretty good, all things considered. So yeah, I've been trying to watch more movies lately. I briefly considered reviewing older movies in some capacity and posting my thoughts online, but as far as the Retro Wildlands are concerned, I'm going to keep the podcast and anything I post on YouTube strictly to video games, at least for now. I may post some very short movie reviews on my personal social media pages, which, if you're hurting for friends, you can certainly follow my personal pages if you can't get enough of me, my terrible humor, or my luscious Italian voice. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter if you search nomad underscore 3033. I don't post very often, but I usually use my personal pages for anything not video game related. Oh, and bonus points if someone can guess the significance of the 3033 at the end of my handle. So beyond all my video game playing and movie watching these past few weeks, things have been going pretty okay for the podcast itself. 
On July 21st, the podcast officially turned one year old, and I have to say, it has been a wild ride so far. When I first started the show, I came out of the gate pretty hot and heavy for a while. I was pumping out a show every week, and I was able to commit a decent amount of my time and attention to the show. A lot of that changed, though, as my adult job required me to devote more hours to it instead of my hobbies. To pull back the curtain a little bit, I'm a supervisor in a call center, and I have several people that report to me. I'm responsible for a lot of things in my job, and things started to get more involved when I was given even more direct reports. It was actually pretty awesome at first. I looked at it as an opportunity to show what I could do by having a larger team that I was responsible for, but ultimately it required a lot more time to manage, and I needed to make sure I was hitting my boss's expectations as well. I found myself going to work earlier and earlier, and staying later and later than normal, just to meet the bare minimums I needed to in my role. That's primarily the biggest reason why I had to dial back how much I was putting into the Retro Wildlands. I hate saying it out loud, but at the end of the day, my job is what pays the bills around here and puts food on the table, not this podcast, so I had to shift priorities around a little bit. I will say, though, all of you listening have been extremely supportive of me stepping back a bit. The comments I've gotten through social media and the direct messages of encouragement have been extremely humbling. I'm proud of the quality of shows that I put out, but that quality comes at a cost because it takes time to put together a show how I envision it. But there you were, right there to encourage and support me, and I cannot be more grateful. It's also been encouraging and invigorating networking and talking with other podcast hosts as well. I don't want to list off all the podcasters and people that I've networked with for fear of missing someone, but you know who you are. Whether we've talked on Discord, through social media, or you've just shared my posts with your followers on your platforms. I sincerely appreciate any time that you're willing to put into me, and I'll forever be humbled by that. I originally started this show to talk about the video games that I like and to try to sound mildly entertaining while I did it, but now I've discovered so many new games and networked with so many awesome individuals because of this passion project. And beyond that, I like the idea that I'm slowly building something, something that will hopefully stand the test of time that people can look back on and go, hey, he did that thing. And I will say, if this show never gets another download, I can still look back on it and consider this project a success. So thank you to everyone that took the time to check out my dumb little podcast in any capacity. Seriously, you fucking rock, and don't you forget it. Alright folks, I think with that, it is time to get this expedition up and running again, and back into the gaming wildlands. Let's get settled in and ready to talk about the reason that you're all here today. It is time to talk about Blaster Master for the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Chris Copeline from the Retro Hangover podcast, which is a podcast you need to check out by the way, wrote into the show over on our Twitter page, or wait, is it, is it called X now? Whatever, anyway. And he said, That opening music is probably among the best on the NES really gets you ready to go find that damn frog. Chris, you're right on the money, my man. 
If nothing else, this game's soundtrack is one of the greats, and the opening to the very first level does a great job of getting you pumped up to set off on your underworld adventure. I think it was about 15 seconds into playing this game that I completely forgot why I was even doing what I was doing, but it still felt awesome, and the music really drives you while you're exploring the underground in order to find your dumb frog. Thank you very much for chiming in on this episode, Chris. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Just Another Video Game Blog posted a comment over on our Facebook page and said, I think I said this on a previous post, but while I love Blaster Master, I don't know if it aged all that well. Were I to try it now for the first time, I'm not sure I'd like it all that much. Now, from my perspective, I think that can go either way. For me, the game really grew on me the more I played it and sunk more time into it. But it can absolutely be a slow burn, especially when you're just learning where to go and what your objectives are. But in the beginning, yeah, I was considering just moving on because I didn't know how much time I wanted to commit to this game. Was my time well worth it, and has this game aged well today? Well, you're just gonna have to listen to the show and find out what my thoughts are, my friend. And thank you for the comment, I really do appreciate you reaching out. Published by Sunsoft and originally released on November 30th, 1988 in North America, Blaster Master has players taking control of a guy named Jason. Jason had a pet frog named Fred. Fred's home was a fishbowl for some reason, and after an unknown amount of time residing in said fishbowl, Fred finally decided that he had enough and escaped. On his way out, he encounters a chest full of radioactive material. He grows to an enormous size and falls into a massive hole in the ground. Jason tried to reach after Fred, but was unable to and falls into the hole himself. Once at the bottom, he discovers a huge armored vehicle that he decides to use in his efforts to find Fred and to return him home. Along the way, though, Jason will encounter all manner of radioactive creatures and mutants. Will Jason be able to survive long enough to find and rescue his frog companion? Or will Jason be ripped apart and his entrails laid bare for all to see? That, my friends, is going to be up to us. So let's get ready, Wildlanders. Get dressed in your full-body radioactive protection suits, don your helmets, and strap into your armored tanks. This story setup may be pretty nonsensical, but we have a vast world to explore and many enemies to dispatch along the way. Fred the Frog is out there somewhere, hopping around in a world full of danger, and we will not stop until he is back in his fishbowl, safe and sound, whether he likes it or not. And in order to do that, we'll need to hunt down the Plutonium Boss and his many minions. Our mission, destroy him, before he destroys us. Growing up, while I had access to the original Nintendo for a short while, I didn't get a chance to play too many games on the system. 
It wasn't until I was much older that I realized how much the system had to offer and just how much I missed out on. Back in the 80s when the only thing we had to go on was word of mouth and the box art of a game, there was no way to tell really what a game was about and if that game was any good or not. Blaster Master was one of those games I missed out on growing up, and I didn't really know much about it until the last few years when I really started messing around with older retro video games as I grew into adulthood. I do remember seeing this game at my local video game rental store though when I was younger. The box art looked really badass, and I would often find my eyes being drawn to it whenever I would see it. A gnarly-looking monster with sharp fangs for teeth and a red-targeting reticle seemed to signify that this game involved... well, it involved blasting. Blasting monsters, specifically. And while that certainly sounded appealing, I tended to favor renting other games. Typically, when I rented anything, it was anything involving the Ninja Turtles, mostly. I was almost afraid at times to trust something new. My parents or my grandparents didn't really let me rent video games all that often, so I didn't want to take many chances on something I didn't know I was going to like. The Turtles, though, they were my safe haven. So Blaster Master, like so many other NES titles, remained on the store shelves and were eventually lost to time. So fast forward to a few years ago. As I started getting into game collecting and diving into retro games in general, Blaster Master kept popping up. As I looked into games I wanted to acquire or play, I'd find Blaster Master on all sorts of top NES games of all times lists. Nintendo Power ranked it as their 63rd best NES game of all time, and IGN put it up there even higher at their 22. Pretty much everywhere I looked, Blaster Master was hanging around somewhere. It was never THE best NES game, but it was pretty high up there. And even some YouTubers that I follow tended to sing this game's praises. Of all the reviews that I've read, Fast and Furious gameplay, Radically Different, Never Crowded or Unbalanced were some of the high points that were called out. And the soundtrack to this game is considered by many to be one of the best on the console. As a lover of gaming music in pretty much all forms, that alone got my attention. But what also caught my attention were some of the criticisms, mainly around the game's difficulty. While NES games are notoriously tough, Blaster Master was in a league all its own. Sections of the game where the player is outside their tank and on foot could be harsh and unforgiving. Boss monsters were so difficult that players had to exploit a glitch in order to progress most of the time. Weapon upgrades would be lost as you took damage, and sometimes damage was almost unavoidable. But worst of all, the game had no save feature or password system. Blaster Master is not a short game, so unless you know exactly where you need to go 100% of the time, you're going to be taking lots and lots of time exploring and battling monsters while you're trying to find your way. If you die and lose all of your continues during this adventure, you need to start the game over from scratch. And that can account for a lot of lost time. And while we're talking about time, it kind of goes without saying that time is my most precious resource, and I'm not really all that enthusiastic about losing any of it. So all that said, does Blaster Master hold up today? Is it worth putting your time into? Is it a fun experience or just an exercise in frustration? 
in order to answer those questions while giving you, dear listener, an idea of what this game's all about, we need to tear Blaster Master apart and see exactly what it is that we're working with. So, what is this game? Blaster Master is a combination of a few different game genres. It's one part side-scrolling run-and-gun shooter, one part top-down adventure game, and one part Metroidvania. Blaster Master wears a couple different hats, and right off the bat, that makes this one of the more unique games on the entire NES console. Hell, it's even unique when comparing it to games of today, and I think that's saying something. But what's even more unique about this game is the game's story. Now, in most video games, you usually get some sort of story-related reason for why you're doing the thing that you've come to do. Save Princess Peach from Bowser, stop Mr. X and his goons from terrorizing the city, recover the Master Sword, and rise up to become the Warrior of Legend. And while not every story is a deep one, they're usually enough to give you that drive to move forward and tackle all challenges. And then there's the story in Blaster Master, where you chase your pet frog down a hole after he escapes his fishbowl, encounters a random container of radiation, and he grows to a huge size. Oh, and inside the hole you come across a tank called Sophia III that just happens to be parked where you land. You jump in so you can use it to locate your frog pal, all while eliminating radioactive mutated creatures in the depths below, all of whom are being controlled by the creature known only as the Plutonium Boss. How you know his name, let alone the fact that he's controlling all these creatures, is beyond me, but I digress. So your mission in Blaster Master is to recover your pet frog and eliminate the Plutonium Boss and his minions before they eliminate you. There, that's it. That is the story setup. And as you play through the game, you do not get any more story than that. You're on a journey to make it to the end of the game, defeat the final boss, and claim victory. And while that almost sounds cheap in a sense, I'm actually quite okay with this. Because really, when you're playing Blaster Master, you're playing it for the actual gameplay experience. A few seconds into my adventure, I had lost all recollection as to why I was progressing through this game in the first place. All I cared about was exploring, finding new areas, and progressing to the next area. And goddammit, I had a pretty good time while I was doing it. Eh, most of the time, that is. Now before we slide this game into our Nintendo and peel back all the different layers and set out on our adventure, we're going to need one crucial piece of equipment. And while you need this piece of equipment by default when playing most retro video games, this time it is especially important. Yes, I am talking about the game's instruction manual. While Blaster Master isn't a complicated game, really, when it comes to the gameplay mechanics, the instruction manual for this game comes with several in-game maps. While these maps aren't the most detailed, really, they're certainly better than nothing. And trust me, you're going to be thankful for what you have. And more than the maps in the instruction manual, it also has a special hint chart that spells out what you need to do in each stage of the game in order to move to the next one. The manual doesn't give you a step-by-step -step or anything like that, but it tells you what your main objective is and what you should be looking for in order to progress. 
Example, you want to earn the Hover power-up by defeating the mutant boss in Stage 3, then take that new power-up back to Stage 1 because the entrance to Stage 4 is in Stage 1, and you can now access it using your new Hover power-up. But Nomad, what's a Hover? And are you telling me there's backtracking? Just how big of a game is this? Well, dear listener, I think it's about time I give you a taste. Let's grab a copy of Blaster Master off of our shelf, blow into the cartridge, and slide it into our Nintendo. It's time we jump down the hole and make our way into a world of adventure. When we put Blaster Master into the NES and power it on, we are met with the game's logo. It flashes so fast and so bright, too. When I first played this game on my Switch, it was dark in the room that I was in, and the flashing was almost a little offensive. I winced a little, but eventually it stopped. I remember sighing and shaking my head, though. We were not off to a great start, but no matter. In those moments where you're regaining your eyesight, the screen will fade to black, and on screen, an opening movie will appear. Here, in still image form, we're told the story of Jason and his frog and how poor Fred gets tired of living in his fishbowl. He makes a break forward and stumbles upon a container of radioactive material that just so happens to be haphazardly discarded in Jason's backyard, apparently. After growing to a huge size, Fred the Frog jumps down a hole in the ground, we give chase, find a futuristic tank, suit up, and prepare for our adventure. After the movie ends, we're back at the title screen. If we wait a little longer, we'll be shown a short gameplay demo, but sometimes the best way to learn and experience something is by doing. So instead of watching anything else, it is time we get to it. When we press the start button, we're met with a backside view of our tank, which is named Sophia III, for some reason or another. Sophia is rumbling up and down, clearly rearing to go. The underground tunnel we're in looks pretty awesome by NES graphics standards, too. What's even more awesome is the music that plays as we get ready to go. It slowly builds, and right before it crescendos, our tank bursts forward through the tunnel, and it is instantly out of sight, leaving only a twinkle of light in the distance. It's a fantastic opening and really gets the blood pumping. Once the screen goes black, we're met with some white on-screen text. Left 2, it says. This means we have two lives before it's game over. It's not shown on screen, but we also have five continues to use when we run out of these lives. So effectively, we have ten chances to make it through to the end of the game. Will we make it? Eh, probably not. But let's not dwell on the game's incredible difficulty just yet. Let's get started and learn some of the ropes. When the game truly begins, our tank drops to the ground and we're immediately given control. Even though we're in the vast underground beneath the Earth's surface, the area we're in looks fairly outdoorsy, and we appear to be in a mountainous region. The sky in the distance is blue, and a few white clouds hang overhead. We can see a vast mountain range in the distance as well. We ourselves seem to be on one of those mountains, and the ground underneath us is green and lush. We certainly are in a strange place, but before we get going, we should probably get a feel for the control scheme and figure out how to control this massive tank that we're in. First up, let's talk movement. Pressing the directional pad left or right will move us in those directions. Pressing the A button on the NES controller will have the tank hop in the air. 
All things considered, our futuristic ride can get some pretty serious air, and we're going to be finding ourselves airborne fairly often. Pressing the B button on the controller fires our primary weapon, the big cannon sticking out the front. While we're in our tank, this will be our main means of dispatching any mutated enemies that make their way towards us. If we press and hold the directional pad up, we can aim our cannon up and fire straight above us. We can only fire our cannon in those three directions though, in front of us, behind us, and above us. The instruction manual claims that we can fire downwards if I'm reading it right, but I never figured out how this can be done with our main cannon. Firing below us is possible though if we use a special weapon, more on those later. There's one quick thing before we shove off that I wanted to point out really quick. While testing out our tank's features and functions, you'll notice that our tank is actually animated fairly well, and is pretty detailed. Moving back and forth will have the entire top half of the tank actually swivel in those directions, and the animation looks really smooth. Equally as smooth as watching the cannon point upwards. And beyond that, I love jumping. When you're on your way down, you can see the wheels tuck themselves closer to the main chassis of the tank as if bracing for the landing. I really appreciated these little touches, and it helped really pull me into this experience. Okay, we've been messing around for long enough. Fred is out there, and while I'm not completely convinced he wants to be rescued, we're going to rescue him, so it's time to get on mission. As we move forward, we come across our first threat. Standing in our way is a gray, golem-looking creature. As soon as it spots us, it starts making its way towards us. But this isn't your normal shambling enemy like a Goomba from Super Mario. As soon as the golem sees us, it starts to jump in the air as if to try and stomp on us. Well, we sure as hell don't have time for any of this nonsense. We fire our main cannon at the creature and dispatch it. It took a few blasts from our cannon to destroy the creature, so we'll have to bear that in mind moving forward. Once the creature perishes, it leaves behind a symbol with the letter P on it. The P stands for power, and is basically health for us. If you look towards the lower left-hand side of the screen, you'll see a POW meter, P-O-W. It's full right now, but as we take damage, this meter will decrease. Once it's empty, we will die and lose a life. Pretty much every enemy has a chance of dropping health, so while there's no high score to chase or anything like that in this game, making it a point to defeat any enemies you come across can be helpful, especially if you're low on health. In our case though, we don't really need any health right now, but we pick it up anyway. As we move forward, there's a small incline in the terrain that forces us to jump up in order to get on top of it. Right as we do, though, there's another golem enemy waiting for us and immediately starts jumping towards us. Luckily, our reflexes are on point, and we bring him down with a few cannon blasts. Yeesh, these mutated bastards are pretty aggressive, and we are barely 10 or so seconds into the game. We definitely need to stay on our toes. Almost immediately, the ground ends, and we have to make a jump to the next platform. Be careful here, because even though the ground below looks like grass and seems safe to traverse on, it is not. Fall here and you'll take massive damage and have a hell of a time getting back on solid ground. I'd like to think everyone playing this game for the first time probably fell down to the bottom of the screen thinking it was safe and found out quickly that it was a bad idea. 
Or at least I hope others did, and I'm not the only idiot who did. Anyway, after we hop over to the next platform and to the one beyond that, we meet with yet another golem enemy. This one spawns right as we make our way to the ground, and 100% of the time he manages to touch the tank and deal damage. At least he always does to me. When this happens though, you will notice a couple of things. First, our health will decrease a bit, which is a given, but more importantly you'll notice that the brief period of invincibility that you usually get after being hit in most games is incredibly short in this game. Barely a quarter of a second, and I think that's being generous. That said, you need to make damn sure that you put some distance between you and the enemy so you can either counterattack or make a quick getaway. In our case though, I vote we just get the hell out of here and continue on. The terrain drops down a little bit, and as soon as we land on the lower level, we're met with another golem enemy and a new enemy type. In the skies above, a gray round orb looking thing called the Bell Bomber is flying overhead. This enemy will drop bombs onto your position, and once they do, they'll fly straight up and then off the screen. And these bastards are fast too. With the golem on the ground and the bombs coming in from above, I will generally take a few hits in this section. What makes it hard is the bell bombers are so hard to hit with your cannon too. Whether you decide to stand your ground or push forward, there's yet another new enemy to face before we exit this small starting area. From the left and right sides of the screen fly in a few enemies called eyelets. Those that have played Castlevania and remember the flying Medusa heads will have a great idea as to how these enemies behave. They fly on screen in a zigzag sort of a formation which makes them very hard to target. I had decent luck just moving forward as I jumped over these annoyances. But beyond this threat lie one more enemy in waiting that wants to stop us. These little gray balls with feet are called Tsunami, and they'll cling to whatever surface that they're walking on. There are four platforms you need to jump to in order to get to the doorway that leads out of this section. You can take your time to dispatch these enemies if you want, or you can use the maneuverability of your tank and hop over them to safety. Once you reach the platform on the other side, there's a doorway that you could roll through that will take you into the next area. <sighs> Good lord. In just 30 seconds, the game has thrown multiple enemy types at us that either want to stomp us, bomb us, skewer us, or knock us into a hazardous pit. I don't know about you, but when I first played this area, I had less than half my health remaining. And things in the next room didn't get much easier either. Even more enemies were present, including a ceiling-mounted gun turret that randomly lobs bullets in several directions, and other floating creatures. Just, what the fuck is this place that we're in? Are we in hell? Because I'm pretty positive we are most likely in hell. But beyond the immediate difficulty spike, I have to say that I felt like the game was pretty approachable, all things considered. So what makes Blaster Master so appealing to play, despite what we just experienced? For me, it was exploring this vast world that we find ourselves in. While you have your objective of finding your lost frog and defeating the plutonium boss, the game doesn't tell you where you need to go. You have to figure that out for yourself. 
The game also doesn't provide you with a map of any kind, so unless you have the instruction manual, or you look one up online like I might have, you're going to find yourself lost and backtracking a bunch when you really don't need to be. I have to imagine those of you listening that have strong nostalgic ties to this game probably had a ton of fun exploring. Blaster Master's levels aren't like your traditional ones. You're not making your way to the right of the screen towards an endpoint. There are multiple doorways and entryways to different sections of the area that you're in. Ultimately, though, what your goal is in this game is to find the boss monster of each area, defeat it, and then use the item that you acquire to move into the next area. Now, these items that you find aren't just keys to doorways or anything, well, with the exception of one. Generally, though, you're going to be finding upgrades to your tank, Sophia, that will allow you to blast past an obstacle, fly in the air to an unreachable point, or navigate an underwater area. It's a gear-gating system, very similar to pretty much every Metroidvania-style game out there, and this is probably the best part of the entire experience. Not every path is going to lead to something worthwhile, but every path is certainly worth exploring as you get a lay of the land and figure out where you need to go next. What made Blaster Master fun for me as I was exploring was upgrading Sophia and equipping her with more weapons than just my main cannon. You can find three unique special weapons that, once you have them, you can equip them from the pause menu. You can carry up to 99 of each of these weapons. First is the homing missile. It's a weapon that will fly towards an enemy and deal damage to it. It's great for enemies that are extremely maneuverable, but more than that, they're great for enemies that aren't on the same plane as you. What I mean is, the homing missile will fly through most walls and surfaces. It's perfect for clearing out a room of enemies, but the missile does tend to get stuck sometimes if you shoot it on the same plane as your enemy. I'm not really sure how to describe it, but the homing missile works best when it comes towards the bad guys from above or from below. Straight ahead, the missile sometimes hovers over small enemies, and it's really strange to see. Moving on from the homing missile, we have our next weapon called the Thunderbreak. This will fire a lightning blast straight down below you, and it is perfect for baddies underneath you. And like the homing missile, it will go through surfaces. Moving on to our last weapon, we have the Multi-Warhead Missile. This will fire three missiles straight out in front of you, and from what I can tell, they deal pretty decent damage. They're a lot like the Dirk weapon from Batman on the NES, if you can remember that one. But of those three weapons, I found that I would use the homing missiles most often. To use a special weapon in this game, you have to hold down the directional pad and press your shoot button just like using a sub-weapon in Castlevania. The whole concept is easy enough, but I will say, when I was floating in areas where I was submerged underwater, pressing down is what makes you submerge faster when you have the right upgrade to your tank. I would instinctively find myself holding down to descend faster, and instead of shooting my main cannon, I would instead fire my sub-weapon. A minor inconvenience I felt like griping about, but nothing too terrible. In order to outfit your tank with these special weapons, you just need to find them as power-ups after being dropped by enemies or by blasting blocks to expose them. I generally found them in areas where I was controlling Jason outside of the tank. Wait, what was that now? Yes, you heard me right. 
If Blaster Master didn't sound cool enough already, another of its awesome features is that you have the ability to get your character out of the tank and traverse the world on foot. In order to progress in the game, you're going to have to do this often, as there are a few places that can only be navigated while you're on foot. While you're on foot and out of the tank moving around, Jason has his own power meter. Getting in the tank replenishes it, so if you find yourself in a bind, this is one way to heal your wounds. Jason himself carries around a pea shooter for a weapon that you can shoot to defend yourself, but it does considerably less damage than Sophia's cannon, but you're not going to be doing much actual fighting in the side-scrolling areas. Jason's time to shine will be in the multiple dungeons you're going to come across that only Jason can enter. When entering a Jason-only dungeon, the game changes from a side-scrolling platformer to a top-down-ish third-person perspective. Jason's character sprite is bigger and much more detailed in these stages. He almost looks like Bomberman, in my opinion. The pea shooter that Jason has in the side-scrolling world is represented here as a long-barreled firearm of sorts, but it is still a pea shooter. While it fires pretty fast, it is incredibly weak and doesn't fire very far. You can, however, upgrade Jason's gun by filling up the gun meter that's now on the left-hand side of your screen. Collecting gun power-ups, which you can only find in these sections of the game, will increase your gun power and change how your gun fires as well. Initially, you'll only fire single bullets that will travel halfway across the screen before dissipating. Eventually, you'll be able to fire across the whole screen and fire more bullets at one time. As you get more gun power-ups, your weapon will start to fire bullets that will fly out in a circular pattern, allowing for more destructive coverage. And if you can upgrade your weapon all the way, you'll find yourself firing a stream of bullets that flow out and in, sort of like kind of in a wave pattern. And these bullets will pass through solid objects, too. It is pretty much the fuck everything button, and you want to do your best to get to this point sooner rather than later. Now, as you move around in these top-down sections, you'll obviously come face-to-face -face with enemies trying to stop you. Not only that, you'll come across environmental hazards like floor spikes that will do damage to you if you step on them. One thing you'll notice about Jason is how he holds his weapon. It's actually cradled underneath his right arm. What this means is, Jason will not fire straight out in front of him from the center of his body as you might expect in most games. He'll actually fire slightly to the right of center. While at first I thought this was an interesting element of realism, I quickly found out that this element of realism can be a royal pain in the ass. It can be quite cumbersome lining up shots against the enemy when you have to line Jason up a little bit off-center. It was hard to get used to at first, but as you upgrade your gun, you don't really have to worry about this that often, as your bullets will fly out in a wave fashion, and lining up Jason is kind of a thing of the past at that point. As you traverse these top-down sections, one thing you'll most likely come across are destructible blocks. Using your weapon, you can blow these blocks away, and if there are power-ups like health, ammo for Sophia, or gun upgrades in the dungeon that you're in, you'll most likely find them within these blocks if they aren't already laying out for you to grab. I will say, it is almost cathartic blowing away all of these blocks and uncovering the loot that they hide within. However, something interesting I found out, 
You do not want to pause the game while you're in the middle of doing this. Because when you pause the game and then unpause the game, all of the blocks that you destroyed will be back. It's an interesting little glitch, but what it doesn't do is repopulate the power-ups within, so you can't use that to your advantage, so get that idea out of your head. So, what's the point of these top-down dungeons? Ultimately, you're looking for the boss in each area of the game, and you're not going to find them in Sophia. You need to explore these dungeons as Jason and search for the big bad and take them down in one-on-one -on -one combat. Now, while I liked working through these top-down areas for what they were, I realized after going through my first few of these that these sections of the game were probably my least favorite. It actually got to a point where I would find myself dreading them at times. How could that be, you might be wondering? Well, let me regale you with the dungeon experience that I had that led to the very first boss. As I was making my way towards the game's first boss fight, I was at a pretty good place. I had upgraded my gun a decent amount, and I was laying waste to baddies in my way pretty handedly. In the last room before the confrontation, a larger enemy floated towards me. It almost looked like a gigantic, decaying face. It looked pretty gnarly. It wasn't moving all that fast, and I figured I'd have plenty of time to take it down with my powered-up weaponry. However, this particular asshole was not going down, no matter how much lead I threw its way. There were these spike traps all around me, so maneuvering in this particular room was out of the question. Eventually, though, the big guy caught up with me, and he dealt damage to me. At that moment, I made a horrific discovery. Anytime you get hit in these sections, not only do you lose health, but your gunpower level goes down as well. This changed the entire game for me, and I realized Blaster Master is not going to be easy to beat. Eventually, I was able to defeat all the enemies in that particular room, but the cost was great. I barely had about half of my gunpower left. So while it wasn't the fuck-everything wave gun of death that I was hoping I would come into the fight with, my bullets still flew out pretty quick in multiple directions. No big deal, I thought. We could still make this work. And that's when I came across the first boss. When you enter a boss room, the screen lights up in what I feel is a conscious effort to try and give you an epileptic episode. The screen flashes in all sorts of different colors, it is very harsh, and it is very annoying. Even the sound it makes is like nails on a chalkboard. Eh, sorry about that, but if I had to suffer through it, so do you. Anyway, fading in on screen is this big brain-looking monster, and around it floats these tiny little brain-looking things. As soon as it's fully formed, the battle begins. In all actuality, this particular boss encounter is not that difficult. While the big brain slowly floats towards you, you have to avoid the flying little brains on the outside of it. Sounds simple, right? Well, it wasn't simple for my very first attempt. I made several stupid mistakes and allowed myself to get hit, which further reduced my gun power. As my firepower reduced, I had a harder time landing hits on the big brain. I was landing them, but just not as frequently. Eventually, though, the worst case scenario happened. 
I lost all of my health, and I lost a life. God damn it. Oh well, no big deal, I thought. I figured the game would start me just outside the entrance to the boss's lair, or outside the dungeon altogether. A minor setback, but this would allow me to farm for more power-ups and get my gun power back up, so I could come back at full strength and show that floating brain mass who the real boss was. Unfortunately, when I was given control again, the game picked up in the boss's room. The boss faded on screen and my eyes looked to the left where my gun power-up bar was. And, as I expected, it was empty. Son of a bitch. Now I had to fight this prick with nothing but my pea shooter that barely shot halfway across the screen. I can appreciate a good NES tough game, but this was very agitating to me. Eventually though, after carefully maneuvering and precisely timing my shots, I was able to defeat the big brain and I was rewarded with it exploding in a bright ball of hellfire. Once the color of the room came back, I noticed a gray object on the floor. I walked over to it, and I was met with a short victory chime marking my triumph. From here, I was taken back to the entrance of the dungeon where I made my escape. The item that I had found, which you can view in the pause menu, was called the Hyper Beam. It increased the power of Sophia's main cannon, which allows you to blast through an obstruction that blocks your way to Area 2 of the game. From here, I made my way to Area 2, and the gameplay loop continues as such. So that is Blaster Master's gameplay in a nutshell. It really is a fantastic concept. With the areas you make your way through being as open and as vast as they are, they feed your sense of exploration and give you a sense of wonder as you find new paths and experience new things. Even though I found myself lost more often than not, I usually enjoyed just rolling around areas and finding dungeon entrances so I could explore them as Jason. While not all areas yielded anything of value all the time, I found myself being taken over by a sense of wanderlust. Before I found a fully colored map online of the entire game, I found myself drawing out my own map on a piece of paper. It was truly fulfilling exploring this foreign land and mapping it out. I felt very out of place in the beginning and a little overwhelmed, but the more I played and the more I explored, the more I felt like I was finding my place in this world full of radioactive mutants. As I unlocked more of Sophia's abilities like the ability to swim underwater, hover, and even climb walls and ceilings, I felt like I was growing as a player as my tank grew in its abilities. Enemy types in this game are plentiful, but I even found myself getting used to their attack patterns and weaknesses. All of this, though, came at a pretty big cost. Namely, my time and bits and pieces of my sanity. The website How Long to Beat has this game around 4 hours to beat, but I think I legitimately put a solid 7 or 8 hours into this game with how many times I died and had to restart entire runs. Eventually though, I did beat this game, but I did so by taking advantage of save states and a particularly useful damage glitch that I'll touch on in a little bit. Speaking of save states though, that's another thing that I have to complain about with Blaster Master. 
Not only is this game's difficulty pretty unforgiving, there is no way to save your progress, and there is no password system that allows you to pick up where you left off. Meaning, in order to beat Blaster Master legitimately, you have to do it in one play session. Or you can leave your NES on between sessions and hope your parents didn't catch you. Now, I can take this either way. If I was growing up with Blaster Master as one of my only games to play, I would happily play the piss out of it, draw up all the maps, and force my way to the end over time. But nowadays, I don't know if that sort of thing is all that appealing to me anymore. I'm going to be 39 years old in a month. I don't really have time to get good at a game, as the kids say. Not that I don't want to or don't enjoy doing that, don't get me wrong. I just don't think that Blaster Master is that game that I want to put that time into. <sighs> so when I look back on my experience with Blaster Master, I find myself going through a roller coaster of emotions. Really, I like this game overall. Metroidvania-style games aren't my absolute favorite, but I love what they try to do, and the few that I have played, I've really liked. I like how you start off with practically nothing, and you have to work your way through a dangerous world, slowly gaining powers and abilities, and using those new abilities to access new areas, and you have the ability to fight tougher monsters as you progress. It's extremely satisfying, and this approach is probably one of the best ways to keep driving a player to move forward and master the game. The only downside with this approach is the very real possibility that you're going to find yourself stuck at times, unsure as to where you need to go. Sometimes I would just get so turned around that I was unsure if I had explored an area, only to find that I had, and I had just wasted all of my time exploring it yet again. Some of the Metroidvania-style games that I've played circumvent this experience by including an in-game map feature. And while I understand Blaster Master is a much older game and a basic map was included in the instruction manual, I would give my left leg to have an in-game map in Blaster Master. As far as the graphical presentation in this game is concerned, it was pretty okay as well. As far as environments go, Many of them are as eye-catching and pleasing to look at as the opening area that I described. Backgrounds are not groundbreaking from a graphical perspective or anything, but they do do the world it's trying to create justice. The game is overly brown and gray, though, and as such, no one area stood out from all the others. Aside from the opening area, that one was the most memorable to me. Most of the top-down dungeons you come across while you're playing as Jason look even more bland-looking. Many of the earlier ones seem to just be made of dirt and stone and weren't really all that distinct. But where the graphical presentation did do well was with the design of Sophia, Jason himself, some of the enemies, and even some of the boss monsters. Sophia was well-animated, and you can see that as you turn around, jump, and even swim using the dive upgrade. Jason looks pretty okay in the side-scrolling areas, but he really looks good in the top-down sections. His sprite is pretty detailed, even if his head seems to be about half his overall body. As far as some of the monsters go, you get to face the big bad that's on the cover of Blaster Master, and I can't help but love the design here. Very ferocious and very menacing. The only other thing I wanted to mention with regards to the graphics was the fact that I would experience some pretty nasty screen flicker and some graphical tearing when a ton of things were happening on screen at once. 
This was especially frequent when I was in the top-down sections, and my gun was at the fuck-everything level, and things were flying all over the screen, and explosions were going off as bullets were hitting the side of structures. These graphical hiccups, though, were never enough to kill the experience, but they do become noticeable, though. But of all the things that lend themselves to the overall presentation, I have to give a shout-out again to the soundtrack to this game. It is absolutely top-notch. Other than the boss music getting repetitive since the track itself is a little short, I loved practically every other track in this game. They were extremely well composed, and they were an absolute driver on my quest to find that dumb piece of shit frog. Every area of the game had their own unique musical track, and they helped give each area their own identity, too. I will be adding Master Blaster to my rotation of chiptunes, believe that. So as we wind it down, the only other things that I wanted to mention regarding Blaster Master are some little things I was thinking about well after I had finished playing the game. I think what stuck with me more than anything regarding my experience was the sheer difficulty of this game and how much time you need to put into it in order to beat it legitimately. Now don't get me wrong, I love a hard game and certainly appreciate the idea that you might just have to get good at something in order to do well at it. But thinking back, Blaster Master is truly an unforgiving game and I give mad props to anyone that has beaten this game on the up and up. The vast underground that this game takes place in is truly a dangerous place. While most enemies remain gone when you dispatch them, exiting an area and returning will more than likely respawn them. While that can be annoying, oftentimes I would find power-ups or resources I needed, but they would be surrounded by spikes on the floor or some other hazard. There was this one time I saw a full health pickup in one of the overhead sections when I was playing as Jason, but it was completely surrounded by water. If you touch the water in these sections, you will die. Immediately. It's like the developers were just taunting the player, because as far as I know, you have no way to reach this platform. You can't jump, you just have to look at it and frown, because you can't have it. And while I sort of appreciated the idea and how it makes this world seem unforgiving and even more dangerous and treacherous, it mostly just pissed me off and made me roll my eyes. But by far, the most difficult thing about this game were the boss encounters themselves. Not only could they be challenging in their own right, but if you died, you were locked into fighting them and you'd have no way to go back and find weapon power-ups you'd have to fight it with your weakest weapon and find a way to succeed. It is merciless what this does to you as a player. And when you run out of continues, which you very well may do, your progress is all gone and you have to start from scratch. When I sit and think about that though, I often wonder if the developers knew this made the game too hard, and just before releasing the game they gave us an ace in the hole that we could call on. Just what the hell am I talking about, you might be wondering? I am referring to what's known as the grenade glitch. I neglected to mention it before, but when you're in the top-down segments with Jason and you press your A button, Jason will chuck a grenade out in front of him that will explode on impact. It's a pretty decent weapon, and the explosion hangs out for a second or two, doing continuous damage to an enemy unfortunate enough to be caught in the blast. But if you really want to get nasty, you can glitch that explosion and use it to your advantage. Here's how it works. 
if you can toss a grenade and have it explode on the boss, all you have to do is press the pause button right as it makes impact, and the boss will continually take damage while the game is paused. Your timing has to be perfect, it feels like, but if you can pull this off, all you have to do is sit back in the pause menu, watch your boss monster take a shit ton of damage, and when you unpause, you can watch as it explodes in a big burst of flames. Using this method, you can kill pretty much every enemy boss with relative ease using this method. Now, truth be told, I am not a fan of using glitches to progress in a game. I am somewhat fascinated by them, and I love playing around with any that I can get to work, but in general, I am playing the game legit 99% of the time. And that 1% I am not is when I'm playing Blaster Master. There are a few bosses that I could not beat, no matter how hard I tried, even with save states. I eventually gave up, used the grenade glitch, and then I was able to move on. It says something about a game when you have to glitch your way to the end, and it was at this point when I started to use this technique that I realized something. I think there can actually be a point where a game gets too hard, and no amount of practice or skill will change that. Sure, you can get good, practice, and overcome the challenge, and I am sure there are plenty of people that have beaten Blaster Master on their own merits, but I am to a point where that is no longer as appealing to me as I would like, and the time I have to spend on games nowadays comes at a premium. I genuinely had a good time playing this game, I really did, and I know a lot of you love this one, but at this exact moment, I don't think I'm going to be picking this one up again, at least not anytime soon. It's kind of funny, actually. I was recording my gameplay of Blaster Master on my laptop, and I screwed up the recording for the last half of the game. Even to get that last bit of the game's game footage, I am not eager to pick this one back up. I pushed out and beat Blaster Master with save states, and I used a glitch, but that's enough for me. So, to wrap it all up, do I think Blaster Master on the original Nintendo is worth your time? Is it a fun experience? And does it deserve all the praise it's gotten? Yes, yes, and yes. If you're a fan of platformers, shooters, or just good games in general, you owe it to yourself to give Blaster Master a try. Even if you don't finish it legitimately, or you finish it by save scumming and using glitches like I did, I think it's worth experiencing the awesome gameplay and jamming out to that incredible soundtrack. Plus, from what I'm told, there are other Blaster Master games out there that are much better than this one, so I think it's worth your time just to get a taste of this one and see where it all started. When I told people online that I was working through Blaster Master on the NES, I was told that Blaster Master Zero is a great game in the series and much better than this experience in practically every way. Zero is available on the PlayStation 4, Nintendo 3DS, and Switch, PC, Xbox One, and the Xbox Series Everything, if Wikipedia can be trusted. One day I'm going to give Zero a try, and I have a feeling that after experiencing the OG Blaster Master on the NES, I'll appreciate the new experience that much more. But I encourage you, if you have the means to play Blaster Master on the original Nintendo, or you have a Switch and you can play it using your Nintendo Online subscription, I encourage you to give this one a try. 
At the end of the day, I roam the retro wildlands in search of good retro gaming experiences that make for great stories and can make some great memories. And while Blaster Master tested my patience and put me through the ringer, I am very happy I finally get to say that I have played this game. us to the end of another journey into the gaming wildlands my friends this has been episode 41 of the retro wildlands blaster master for the nintendo entertainment system thank you very much for listening to the show today whether this was your first episode your 41st episode or somewhere in between i cannot thank you enough for spending your time with me today i continue to be humbled by the fact that there are people out there that listen to this mess of a show and I mean it when I say I appreciate you. Blaster Master was an experience that I had a hard time putting into words because of how unique this experience was, but I hope I did the game some justice and created a mildly entertaining show in the process. Still can't believe we did all this in search of a stupid frog. My god. Anyway, if you like the show and you want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to the Retro Wildlands on your preferred podcasting platform. Until I can really devote time to the podcast like I used to earlier in the year, episodes are going to be dropping whenever I can make them, so I don't really have a dedicated release schedule right now. Subscribing to the show will let you know the moment I put something new out so you can join up with our Wildlands expeditions right away. Another way you can support the show is by leaving us a good review. Good reviews, I think, will help circulate the podcast in search feeds and help get it into the ear holes of some new listeners. If you like what I'm trying to do here, I would forever appreciate your support with a good review. But if you don't have time for that, no worries. Seriously, the fact that you're listening this far into the show right now is much more that I could ask for, so thank you for being here, my friend. One quick plug for our social media pages before you take off really quick. If you want to interact with the show or just hang out and see what I'm up to, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Threads, and Twitter, X, whatever the hell that thing is now. All you have to do is search at Retro Wildlands and you should be able to find us. I also have a link tree set up, so that is your one-stop shop for all of our social links. Check out link tr.ee forward slash retro wildlands and you'll gain access to everywhere i am on the interwebs so what's coming up next time now that the show is officially a year old i was thinking of what cool episode i could do to sort of celebrate i've been having a good time putting together top 10 lists but i'm thinking my next episode is going to be on another game I've completed a decent amount of games in the last month or so, if you heard me talk about them in the intro, so I need to get my thoughts about them into an episode before I lose them. I've also been kicking around the idea of doing a question and answer episode of the show, and allow you all to submit questions about anything to me, and I'll answer those questions on the show. This could be your chance to pick my brain about pretty much anything. My game collection, my personal gaming tastes, 
something that you want to know about me to get to know me better, or whatever else comes to mind. I personally like Q&A episodes on other podcasts, and they seem like they go over well, so I figure, eh, why not? Maybe I'll put something together like that too. If you like that idea, or you have an idea of your own that might make for a decent one-year celebratory episode of the show, reach out to me on social. I'd love to hear what you have on your mind. Regardless of what comes next, I hope to see you again soon when our expedition makes another journey into the gaming wildlands to discover something new or rediscover something that brings us all some joy. I would be absolutely humbled and honored to have you with us. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. Thank you.